Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And here, back again for a second week after his week off, is uh, Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. It's been a short week in the markets, obviously, because of the Easter holiday. We're recording this on Easter Friday morning, as it happens. So let's just kick off in the normal way, Simon, by telling us what's been uh, going on in the in the markets overall. Yeah, well, it was another down week for the investment company sector. It ended down 0.8% over those four trading days. And that compares with a decline of 1.1% for the wider UK market in the form of the FTSE All Share. In terms of the sector average discount, that moved in a little bit, actually, probably started the week about 4.4% and then closed that short week at 3.8%. But it's certainly been a quieter week in terms of the volume going through the market, um, certainly volumes, aggregate volumes, down about 26% on an average daily basis last week compared with the last week of March. So the last few weeks have certainly been moving a little bit quieter. But in terms of the market's preoccupations, well, obviously, they haven't changed. It's basically inflation and obviously not unconnected, the impact of Russia's invasion on Ukraine. In this week, we saw global food prices hit new highs, but the US consumer price growth hit 8%. And that was apparently the fastest pace since 1981. Uh, UK inflation came in at 7%. And I think it's fair to say that geopolitical risk certainly increased this week with Finland and Sweden edging closer to NATO membership. So I think the questions that the markets are really grappling with at the moment is what will the US Federal Reserve do in terms of rising interest rates? Huge amount of speculation over that. And what will various uh, European countries do to uh, reduce their dependence on Russian oil and gas? And that will have implications for European economic growth and obviously energy prices. Indeed. So there's still a lot for the markets to absorb. Uh, bond yields are still rising. Uh, I noticed the US 10 years now at uh, 2.83%, 2.83%, which is a high for quite a long time. They were a long time period. But the uh, yield curve has gone back to upward sloping. There was a brief moment when it looked like it might invert, which is always a sign that gets some investors worried because it can anticipate a coming recession at some point. And meanwhile, of course, if you're into... Uh, Social media, there's been the news that uh, Elon Musk has bought a, a near 10% stake in Twitter and is saying he wants to buy the whole thing and turn it into a, a, an open forum for civilization. And nothing uh, ungrandiose about his ambitions. But let's kick off us now with uh, a normal um, investment trust roundup of all the news. There isn't much corporate news this week, but uh, I think we might just uh, round off one item concerning Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income Trust, ticker JEFI, which uh, is now, I think, going into liquidation. But uh, tell us what the latest announcement this week about that one is. Yeah, that's right. So there was an update this week on that process. And previously, the board had announced that they would consider uh, rollover options, which is quite standard when you have these kind of situations where an investment company decides for whatever reason to uh, liquidate. Uh, there's invariably a rollover option in place. In this particular instance, though, there will not be a rollover option offered as part of the proposal. Uh, and the board have looked at this and they've reviewed a number of proposals for rollover vehicle candidates, um, but they've deemed that uh, it's not necessary to go down that route. Now, the proposals to wind up Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income Trust will involve a full cash exit, less cost. Uh, that's all subject to shareholder approval and the circular is expected to be published next month. So perhaps you might just explain for those who aren't totally familiar with this idea what a rollover is. Essentially, we're talking about whether there will be shareholders who have, for tax reasons, a reason they don't want to sell their shares uh, for cash or for any other reason. So why is that not being applied in this case? Why is that not relevant in this case? Yeah, so in the case of this Jupiter fund, I mean, it's trading around about 94, 94.5p at the moment. Its NAV is just, just north of 100p which would be the level at which it was issued. So from that, I think we can infer that shareholders will not be sitting on uh, potential capital gains. And that's the point. So a rollover, obviously, depending on a person's tax circumstances, but it can be a tax efficient mechanism. It avoids the kind of crystallization of capital gains uh, and therefore triggers a, a tax bill. So that's why a rollover option is often um, a popular one. And as I said, that's what you'd normally expect to see in, in, in a deal of this kind. And of course, it is worth making the point that because investment trusts are public listed companies, 
they come with a huge number of uh, obligations under company law and uh, and stock market rules and so on. And so, therefore, while that's a great strength from a corporate governance point of view, it's also the case that that incurs can incur some not insignificant costs whenever you go through a process of of change. So you have to hire lawyers, you have to hire. Uh, lots of advisors and so on. You have to issue a circular, which is no cheap thing given how chunky they are these days. <laughs> they seem to be full of legal verbalese. Can you tell us roughly what the kind of costs involved in, in going through a kind of rollover option might be? Oh, gosh, off the top of my head, that might be a, a little bit of a struggle. I mean, you're talking hundreds of thousands of pounds, though. And, and obviously, if you're looking at liquidating a, a large investment company of many hundreds of millions, it probably falls by the wayside. In the case of the Jupiter Fund, it's got assets of about £67 million pounds or so, so not tiny, but at the same time, I suspect the board are minded to minimise the costs involved in the process. Yeah, particularly as there's so few who might benefit from it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Okay, so that's an interesting one, just for those who are interested in the technicalities of investment trusts. Sorry to see that particular trust go. Let's move on then and talk about fundraising. There has been fundraising this year, as we've said in recent weeks, uh, despite the market volatility, but it's been fairly concentrated in a few sectors, particularly those who have done well in the uh, during the current market environment. But let's kick off with there's uh, been an announcement from an investment trust called Cordiant Global Agricultural Income. We hadn't got a ticket yet, which is uh, one that we haven't mentioned so far, but uh, just tell us what the news on this one is. So this investment company published an intention to float at the start of March. But actually this week, the company announced that they paused their IPO process. And that was as a result of what they called the challenging market backdrop facing investors. And their intention is to seek to IPO at a later date. So an interesting new investment company. I mean, what they were looking to do is invest in secured loans to medium to large scale crop producers and agricultural product aggregators that produce soft commodities or fruit and vegetables in the agricultural sector on a global basis. And it would have been run by Cordiant Capital, who are infrastructure specialists. Obviously, we know their digital fund. They managed to get that one away last year. But effectively, they invest in agriculture, digital and renewable energy as well. So this would have been quite a different product within the investment company sector, a different asset class, albeit you could say it's a a specialist debt play, but certainly given exposure to the agricultural sector. But certainly, for the moment at least, we are not going to see this one launched. It is an interesting issue because, as you say, you could uh, debate whether this should be seen primarily as a specialist debt trust or something that is actually uh, cashing in on the commodities boom. It's more of the former than the latter, I would suggest. But we've never really seen a lot of agricultural investment trusts, and you would think that, you know, in principle that this would be a good area for investment trusts to operate in, given that agriculture, farming and so on is an illiquid asset. And that would be the kind of thing that, uh, you know, a specialist property or a specialist uh, trust of this kind would be interested in. Any reasons why we haven't seen uh, any of those? Yeah, I think they're all very valid points. And I can tell you over any number of years in conversations with, with our clients and particularly the wealth management community, there has been strong interest in gaining exposure to agriculture in whatever form. Um, I think it's seen as an attractive long-term asset class. However, there are difficulties involved in basically putting together a product that works. You're right, obviously, by definition, it's an illiquid asset class. So therefore, in, in theory, it lends itself well to the investment company structure. However, it's quite a difficult one to get the diversification within the sector because of the invariably the size of the assets involved. There can be difficulty in terms of Round pricing in terms of yield, in terms of kind of geographical access, and also trying to find investment teams that do have some credibility in the space uh, and are prepared to be involved with uh, an investment company launch and all the rest of it. So, again, interesting to see this particular development. I mean, there have been a number of agricultural funds that have attempted to launch over the years, and clearly none have been successful to date. Okay, so that's one to watch for the future. The next few weeks will be interesting to see whether they do manage to come back to market. Let's move on then and talk about the outcome of the fundraising by Gore Street Energy Storage Fund, ticker GSF. Well, they were successful. They were looking to raise £75 million initially. That was upscaled, so increased. And in fact, they ended up raising £150 million at a price of 110 So that was the issue price, and that represented a 6% premium to their NAV at the end of last year. So even despite the fact they upscaled the issue, it was still oversubscribed and therefore subject to scale back. 
but effectively the proceeds will be used to fund a 1.3 gigawatt pipeline of which 900 megawatts uh, will be in Great Britain, 375 megawatts in North America uh, and the rest in Europe. But uh, yeah, a positive development for Gore Street Energy. Um, they last came to the market to raise additional capital back in October last year. At that stage, they raised £74 million, and that was at a price of 107p per share. That's obviously been a very successful outcome. I mean, do you think that may have been influenced by the uh, recent announcements that we heard from the other energy storage fund, from the Gresham House Energy Storage Fund, which uh, came out and announced, rather surprisingly, I thought it gave a kind of forward announcement about its future NAV and showing considerable uh, increase they're expecting in June, I think it is. Do you think that may have helped the sentiment to this one as well? I mean, these two uh, energy storage funds, they do broadly similar things, I think. But um, uh, that announcement from the from the other one seems to have put a bit of a fire under the, uh, under the sector. What do you make of all that? Yeah, look, I mean, this is an asset class that's clearly in demand. And the premium ratings on, on both these funds are telling you as much, both trading on premium ratings. And in fact, since Gore Street raised that money at 110p, their share prices pushed on again. They're at 115.6p at the end of the trading week. So clearly an asset class that's in favour in demand. And we can understand the reasons why. I mean, you don't have to be particularly on top of the news to realise that energy is very much in focus uh, and that clearly there's going to be a strong emphasis on renewable energy. And these energy storage plays are very much a key part of that and an essential part of that. So I think there's a huge scope here. And, you know, as well, they kind of meet investors' need on a, on a different levels. I think the case for the asset class is strong. Um, I think they meet people's ESG needs, frankly, uh, and also their yield plays as well. So if you actually look at the yield on Gold Street Energy Storage Fund, they were quite implicit when they at launch that they would look to pay a 7p target dividend, which they have achieved. And I think over the longer term, there's plans to increase that. But at the moment, that gives them a yield of about 6% or so. So again, they're meeting investors' income requirements. So do you think we might see some more funding from this quarter? I mean, if there is un- untapped demand, that normally leads to uh, to more supply, so to speak. Um, and presumably, there aren't many capacity issues in this particular sector, or perhaps there are, I don't know. But uh, I guess there's some costs that might be rising as well. But do you expect more fundraising from this sector? They seem to be raised quite a lot recently. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the premiums would suggest that there is demand for the shares and people are prepared to pay premiums. However, I think you're right to focus. It's how that capital, should they wish to come back and raise additional capital, how it can be deployed. Because the last thing that you want to do is to effectively create a cash drag for yourself. In other words, raise too much capital and then struggle to deploy it. Or conversely, uh, be forced to deploy capital in projects, in assets that have a lower return than your existing portfolio, because effectively what you're doing there is diluting down your returns. So I think there are a a number of factors there. I think what you can say, though, overall, that this is a sector that's got a a following wind and you'd expect to see more interest in this one going forward. Okay, and so we can now talk about another corner of the, uh, if you like, the infrastructure world, and that is International Public Partnerships, ticker INPP. And they've had some uh, fundraising news as well this week. Yeah, that's right. They came out and said they were looking to raise £250 million, pounds, uh, that that can be stepped up to £325 million. Pounds, and that's by way of replacing open offers for subscription and intermediaries offer. And that's at an issue price of 159 spot 5p. Now, that issue price represents a 7% premium or so to their NAV at the end of March and about a 6.5% discount or so to the closing price just before this announcement was made. Now, what they've said for existing shareholders, they have an entitlement to subscribe for new shares on a 1 for 12 basis. And the idea is that um, the proceeds of this placing will be initially used to pay down the debt facility. That stands about £156 or so at the moment. In addition to that, to pursue uh, an investment pipeline that's been valued at about £178 million. So we're still waiting to see the prospectus, and it's all conditional on shareholder approval. I think there's going to be an EGM on the 28th of April, but then they should be pushing on thereafter. So what kind of uh, yield are we looking at on this one, given what they've said about their target dividends and so on? Yeah, on a historic basis, at least, we've got them on a yield of about 4.6% at the moment. Uh, I mean, that compares with Hickel infrastructure, which is also in that kind of social infrastructure kind of subsector, that's about 4.5%. And also BBGI global infrastructure as well, that's just slightly lower, about 4.2%. But these are all 
substantial investment companies now. I mean, IMPP, so International Public Partnership, that's got a market cap of over £3 billion. Hickles, £3.5 billion. Uh, BBGI, a little bit smaller, but still £1.2 billion. So they're all substantial funds and trading on significant premiums as well. Yes. And so uh, is it, does it make any sense to compare the premiums of those three you mentioned, for example? What does that, uh, is there any sort of pattern there or are they all basically in the same sort of broad band? Um, BBGI has got the highest premium, about 23%, according to the numbers in front of me. And that has kind of broadly been the pattern over the last few years. And that's a reflection of the way BBGI approach the marketplace and the type of projects and assets that they get involved with. They would say they're very much at the kind of lower risk end of the spectrum. Hickles, uh, I've got that on a premium of about 20% or so at the moment, and that's certainly higher than their average over the previous 12 months, which would be about 13%. International public partnerships, a little bit lower, but you'd expect that. That's kind of the pattern. When these investment companies come out and announce plans to raise additional capital, it's invariably at a little bit of a discount to their share price, and therefore you see that premium uh, compress a little bit. That's what's happened with IMPP, and I've got them on about an 11% premium rating or so at the moment. But again, there's still a lot of demand out there when you talk to your clients, as you say, for this kind of vehicle, even with the yields sort of down in the 4.5% range, that kind of area, there's still a lot of demand at that point, presumably given those uh, given those premiums. Yeah, I think that's right. So, I mean, if you look at what you mentioned earlier about the amount of money raised so far this year, and if you look at the first three months, so the, the data to the end of March, I think over 40% of the funds raised or the capital raised across the investment company sector, over 40% has been in infrastructure. So that's been the area where people have been looking to allocate. Um, and we haven't seen a single IPO so far this year. And uh, again, I think we talked about this last week, but this is the first time since 2016 that we haven't seen an IPO in the, certainly the first three, three or four months of the year. Okay, well, that's uh, going to be another trend that we all have to follow over the course of the year. A lot will depend, obviously, on what happens to the markets generally. Uh, now we can look at some results. Let's kick off in the global sector with Martin Curry Global Portfolio, ticker M. NP, and they produced the annual results for the 12 months to the end of January. That's right. And they generated an NAV total return of 2.9% during that time. Now, that compared to a rise of 15.9% for the MSCI All Country World Index. In share price terms, um, not as good as the NAV actually was down. It was down 2.6%. So it's worth noting on this one that they kind of pursue a zero discount policy. So there's a kind of band around their NAV that they operating that they trade in. And during that 12-month period, they bought back 1.6 million shares into Treasury, while 3.4 million shares were reissued under that zero discount policy. But uh, the results noted that this is the first year of underperformance since the manager, Zedrid Osmani, was appointed. So he took over uh, in October 2018. And it's quite an interesting way that this portfolio is run. So it's a very much a high conviction portfolio, 30 holdings or so, or certainly it was at the end of February really driven by fundamental analysis and proprietary research. So during the period, new additions including uh, NVIDIA, Farfetch and Autodesk, while disposals including Essentia, Starbuck, Alibaba, CyberArk and Metla Toledo. So very stock specific. But one of the interesting things that came out of the results is that they're looking to change the investment policy. So there's a proposal that will make the investment policy more obviously aligned with ESG. So this has always been very much part of um, Zebra's investment approach. So there's going to be no change to the investment approach overall, but they just want to make it more implicit in the fund's investment policy. And they believe, they being the board in this instance, believe that it will act as a differentiator uh, to the rest of their global peers. But overall, the portfolio's focus remains on what they describe as three mega trends, demographic changes, the future of technology and resource scarcity. So Unsurprisingly enough, they're overweight to healthcare and technology. So uh, what kind of comparators can we use when we're looking at this this particular trust? It's a global equity portfolio, obviously. And uh, I think it's uh, the size of the trust is around, what, about 300 million, something like that. What would you uh, compare it with most directly? It's a good question. I mean, I think it's probably became clear from those comments. It's obviously a global fund, global equities fund, very concentrated, but it does have what you could probably broadly describe as a kind of quality growth buyers. So other investment trust companies who would share that kind of same mindset, I would include obviously the Bailey Gifford Fund. So Monks is probably the most obvious one, Scottish Mortgage arguably doing something a little bit different. The Artemis Fund, Midwind International would be another one. 
Um, I'm just looking down the list, those that have a more obvious kind of growth funds. And then you've kind of got the more generalists, the kind of the bankers, the Alliance Trust, Wittens and FNC and so on and so forth. But I think it's those, if an investor was minded to invest in kind of more growth orientated global equity portfolios, then they would be, I would imagine, more naturally looking at the monks, the Martin Curry global portfolio, uh, Midwind International, it's those kind of names where they would be drawn to. And, and you know, most of those comparators, of course, don't operate a, as tight a zero discount policy. Well, they don't have a zero discount policy uh, in most cases. Uh, they do um, defend the discount at a, a range of levels, like informally or formally. Uh, is that right? I mean, are there any other of those groups who actually do have a, a zero discount policy? I'm not, I can't think of one at the moment. No, they, and none of them do. I mean, in that global peer group, the only ones that have a discount control policy or have had historically, it would be names such as Witten and F&C, and they've had you know discount targets or they've made noises around you know protecting the discount. And, and, and to be fair to them, and actually Alliance Trust have done something not dissimilar. They have very active buyback programs that I think we've discussed. But certainly, if you look at those more growth oriented names, it's quite interesting. We, we've seen quite a difference in the in the ratings. I mean, Monks has been derated this year. It's gone from a probably an average one percent discount to a, it's currently on about a six percent discount. Uh, Midwind um, that's done very well actually. It's probably averaged about a two percent premium. It's on about a 3% premium or so at the moment. Obviously, Martin Curry Global Portfolio, that's invariably trading around NAV for the reasons that we've discussed. But actually, if you look at the performance numbers, and if you kind of take three years, so kind of picking up Zerud Osmani's kind of period, then of those, uh, you know, the Monks, Midwine, Martin Curry, then you're seeing quite big dispersions in terms of the returns. So Midwine International, uh, so Alex Ingworth and Simon Edelstein, they're up 52% over three years NAV total return. Monks up 35% and Martin Curry coming in at 26% at the moment. Okay, so at least it's, well, it's certainly differentiated in a, in a number of ways, as you say. So that's, uh, I think that offers investors more variety, which is in a way what we like to see. Let's move on and talk about an interesting specialist vehicle now in the UK, and this is Castlenau Group, ticker CGL, and they've had uh, results for the year to the 31st of December. How did they do in uh, last year? Yeah, I mean, it's a short period, basically. I mean, they only came to the market back in October last year. So this is a you know very, very short period of time. So just to kind of cover off the numbers, the NAV total return, they were down 6.5%. That compared to a rise of 2.5% for the FTSE All Share. It's probably worth just pausing there, actually just discussing what this is about. So I would go with Castle New, but, you, you know, it's a kind of tomato-tomato type pronunciation here. But Castle New, I think, is where I would be. For those people who are vaguely interested, Phoenix Asset Management, who are responsible for this particular vehicle, and they're responsible for Aurora Investment Trust, uh, are based in Barnes, which is an area in southwest London and very near to the Hammersmith Bridge. And Castle New is the name of a road that runs off the Hammersmith Bridge. Putting that to one side, Castle New Group and Phoenix have been talking about this one for a long time. They finally got this launched last year, but it's effectively it's a permanent capital vehicle in which they've got long-term investments. So what does that mean? They've got probably about four or five actual companies within this. It's arguably it's more of a holding company than an investment trust. A company called Dignity, which people may have heard of, represented at the end of uh, last year, 35% of the portfolio. Hornby, uh, which uh, is obviously famous for its model railway trains, that represented 22%. And they've got an uh, interest in a couple of other businesses as well. So what didn't work for them in the period where Dignity saw its share price fall 14% and Hornby's share price was off a little bit. But it, it is an interesting idea what they're doing. I mean, Gary Channon, the CIO of Phoenix, is heavily involved in these businesses. And this is not just a kind of normal uh, make an investment, see how it performs. In fact, I think he's now uh, the chairman of Dignity. So they're very involved now in the actual operations of these companies that have found themselves in the Castle New Group portfolio. Um, and they've actually also got some other subsidiary businesses in there that are working on the IT side and, and digital marketing and so on and so forth. I mean, the idea is that this Carsonal Group generates absolute returns equivalent to 20% per annum. And the way that it was kind of created, so existing clients of Phoenix Asset Management uh, kind of rolled over their stakes in these various different companies to form this company. So I think those clients represented 70% of the shares at launch in the company. Now, there's no management fee, but they do a calculated performance fee over a three-year period. Um, so why is it relevant? Well, if you look at Aurora Investment Trust, and we've talked about that one on a number of occasions, that they're holding, or certainly at the end of March, they're holding in Castle New Group, represented about 12% of the portfolio. So it's an important holding for them. So that's certainly very different from anything else that's out there. But I guess it's it, probably fair to say that um, 
uh, well, it doesn't seem to have made you know particularly good start towards its uh, target returns. But of course, very early days, only a few months, and we have had rather an interesting period over that time. But how does the market treat this one? Presumably, it's not a particularly liquid uh, vehicle, is it? So what's happened to the discount premium uh, on, on this one? Yeah, so you know, technically, it's on a premium of 14% or so at the moment. I've got a share price about 95.5p, NAV about 84p, so the NAV is down. And that's a reflection. Certainly, year to date, Dignity's down about 8%, Hornby's down about 17%. So that would be the kind of key reasons there. I mean, look, it's it's a long-term story, and I think it's a very interesting one, but you're right, the liquidity in it. If nothing else, you know, as I said, 70% of this vehicle was held by clients of Phoenix Asset Management right from the get-go. And there's a couple of other big holders as well. So this is not the most liquid of companies. I just I think it's one to note, particularly for shareholders in Aurora Investment Trust, because it's actually quite a key part of that whole story. And it's I think it does give some insight into the way that Phoenix Asset Management have, as an entity have evolved between being a kind of contrarian value investor to someone who's now proposed to get far more hands-on in the, the running and the operations of the businesses in which they're involved. And what's I just out of interest, what's been happening to Aurora? What's been happening to the shares of that one since effectively they transferred, uh, you know, some of their interest into this new vehicle? So um, Aurora Investment Trust, that's trading on a little bit of a discount at the moment, about 6% or so. I mean, over the last three months, they're down a little bit, so they'd have underperformed the FTSE all share. But there's a few moving parts on Aurora. So um, one of the things they did, I think it was last year off the top of my head, they took out some kind of portfolio protection over the investment team were pretty clear that there was going to be this pickup inflation. And so they sought protection for that. And so I think they have taken out a put, uh, this is all off the top of my head, and that's afforded the portfolio some protection over the last 12 months or so. So if you look at that period for Aurora, whereas you know they've probably not done as badly as one might expect, uh, in fact, they're in positive territory, given that some of the holdings in the portfolio will have had a tough time over the last year or so. Okay, an interesting vehicle indeed. And Gary Chan is always an interesting man to listen to, has a very distinctive approach. Let's move on and talk about more conventional vehicles now overseas. And uh, we'll start off with Aberdeen Asia Focus, ticker AAS, who've had some interim results. That's right, interim results for the six months to the end of January. So the NAV total return in that period was up 0.6%. That compared with a decline of 0.8% for their benchmark, which is the MSCI All Country Asia X Japan Small Cap Index. Uh, the share price total return came in positively at 2.8% as a reflection of the discount narrowed a little bit. But I think we've talked about this one in recent months. So there was a big, well, not insignificant, let's put it that way, investment policy change. It changed the name of this fund. There was a share split. They've adopted enhanced dividends. They reduced their fees. Uh, Flavio Chang and Neil Sun have joined the portfolio management team. So they've kind of repositioned this one. So it's still focused on Asian smaller companies, um, but they changed some of the, the limitations that they'd previously operated on. They allowed them with more scope to buy some larger companies. But in this particular six-month period, what worked for them? Well, it was um, stock selection in the communication sector, also real estate and healthcare also was positive. So this is a case of a trust which has suffered from obviously some wider trends. Emerging markets and Asia have not done as well as other parts of the world. And smaller companies have been suffering all around the world, I think it's fair to say. In almost every market, small cap has been badly hit in the last few months. But there's another one we can talk about in the same sort of field. Scottish Oriental Smaller Companies, ticker SST. These are interim results as well. And this time, though, to the end of February rather than the end of January. Yeah, that's right. Just that slightly different period. Um, in that time, they saw their NAV total return down 2.8%. That compared with a decline of 4.5% for the benchmark. It's the same benchmark as for Aberdeen Asia Focus. The share price total return was actually positive. It was up 1.2% as the discount narrowed in from about 14% to 10%. So the biggest contributors to performance, well, um, they had a, an exposure to Taiwan, which worked for them. Also holdings in Thailand, Vietnam, Pakistan and Malaysia also proved positive well, as they saw detractors in the Indian and Indonesian markets. But they initiated six new positions during the period uh, while they sold seven companies. But yeah, I mean, the commentary was around some of the valuations, um, around some of the holdings they had in India and Malaysia. Uh, they got quite expensive and then they therefore decided to dispose of those. And that's very much what the manager here, Vinay Agawal, who's um, part of FSSA Investment Managers, he's based in Singapore, but it's very much a kind of value orientated uh, investment approach with this one. So uh, I don't know how you would classify these things, but there's also uh, 
fidelity Asian values, I think, slots into this same kind of sector. Is that uh, is that how you allocate them? Yeah, very much. Yeah, and those are the only three, I think. So um, at first sight, they all look pretty much of a muchness to me, just looking at the, at the numbers overall. But uh, the sector is not particularly large. Does it have a wide uh, shareholder base or is it a relatively specialist area? And, and uh, do they always trade at a discount like this? A lot of questions. Gosh, there. A lot of questions there. Um, well, let's try and unbundle some of those. They're all trading on discounts at the moment. So I've got Aberdeen Asia Focus on an 11% discount. Uh, Fidelity Asian Value is probably an 8% discount. Scottish Oriental, a 9% discount. So they're all kind of much of a muchness. And they're not dissimilar necessarily to what we've seen on average over the previous 12 months. So Fidelity Asian Value is probably the most obvious one has been derated. It's gone from a 4% average discount to an 8% current. In terms of size, I mean, they're all relatively decent sized vehicles. I mean, Aberdeen Asian Focus... Market cap of nearly £440 million. Fidelity, Asian values, £330 million, And Scottish Oriental, just short of £300 million. So you wouldn't call them small necessarily. I think your comments, though, are spot on in terms of people's uh, appetite for smaller companies generally. And that's not an Asian story. That's across the world. And you can see that very much even in the UK market. But we have seen uh, UK bin and small cap funds derated this year. But in terms of the, the performance records, if you look at five years NAV total return, then there is quite a difference in terms of the returns that these funds have generated. So the Aberdeen uh, Asian Focus Fund, that's got the strongest return, up 41% NAV total return over five years. Fidelity, not too far behind it, up 35%, whereas uh, Scottish Oriental smaller companies up 12%. And I would suggest that that is a function of that um, quite strong value-orientated approach. I mean, that's certainly proved a headwind over that period. But if you look at those kind of returns and you compare them with their larger cap peers, which is always worth doing, certainly the Aberdeen Fund it would not be disgraced in company with the large cap funds. But we've seen stronger returns, I think, overall from some of the larger cap funds. I mean, Pacific Horizon that we've talked about a number of occasions has been a, an incredible performer, frankly, over the last five years. Schroeder Asia total return up 63% over that five-year period. So I think, I suspect uh, investors in general have been attracted towards those larger cap mandates. And certainly the ratings would suggest that. Okay, so now we can move on and talk about Chrysalis Investments. This has always been an interesting one and quite a controversial one. Uh, Ticker CHRY. Controversial for a number of reasons, but mainly uh, last year because the uh, managers collected a vast performance fee, which uh, raised some eyebrows as the shares subsequently um, took a bit of a beating. Anyway, they've made an announcement. What have they said this week? Yeah, this was a slightly unusual announcement, actually. This is not one that we necessarily expected. They've announced an interim NAV as at the 21st of March, and that NAV came in at 208p. That was down 13% from the end of December. Uh, So just to remind people, so Chrysalis Investments effectively invests in pre-IPO or private companies, though obviously there are a number of companies in the portfolio that are now listed. But ordinarily, you would expect to see an NAV update on a kind of every three-month basis. So um, the next point being the end of March, 31st of March. Now, that coincides with the fund's interim results. And certainly if last year is anything to go by, you wouldn't expect to see those till the end of June. So a number of months down the track. Now, clearly, the board have been minded of the, the fact that it has been derated, this investment trust company. In fact, before this announcement was published, we had it on a 26 percent a discount, and that was based on that year-end NAV. So I think the board were very much minded to provide more up-to-date valuation to the market. Certainly helpful given that they're now going to, or they now are actually in a closed period as we go through to waiting for their interim results. But more than that, it wasn't just a kind of NAV update. The board actually commissioned an independent third party to value not the whole portfolio, but six assets, which together with cash and listed holdings represented 67% of the portfolio as at the end of 2021. So a substantial proportion of it. In addition, the remaining 33% were valued using the usual methodology. So this idea that they brought somebody else in to have a look at the values, because there has been questions. It's a very, very chunky portfolio. I mean, you've got holdings such as Klarna, 23%, Starling Bank, 17%, uh, WeFox was 10%. These are all weightings as at the end of 2021. So very concentrated portfolio, particularly at the top end. So we have seen that NAV fall. I mean, since you you mentioned the performance fee, and you're absolutely right, that has been uh, very controversial. And the performance fee was based on valuations at the end of September uh, last year, which was at the point of their final results. And in fact, we'd already seen an NAV decline of about 6% between September and December. Now we've seen an additional 13% decline to the 
21st of March. So overall, the, the, the portfolio is valued probably about 17% or so lower than that year-end 30th of September valuation um, that triggered the performance fee. Uh, yeah, that's unfortunate, so we say, to put it gently. Uh, very unfortunate that's what's happened. Uh, and it has underlined one of the problems with the performance fees, which is they're struck at a specific date, typically, though I think it wasn't. it's not all paid in, in one go, is it? But uh, uh, it's struck at a particular date. And if the subsequent uh, performance is not so good, it does make it look, shall we say, unhelpful. So what is the board thinking here? I mean, why are they doing this, uh, this rather unusual step of, you know, commissioning an outside valuation? Is it just to deal with the kind of uh, complaints they've had or the questions they've been asked by the uh, their larger investors? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, it, you, you could look at it both ways. You could even say that the board are under the cosh because they've allowed a situation to, to kind of come to pass where you've paid an outsized performance fee on unrealized profits, which I think is one of the, the key points. And then we've subsequently seen a valuation declines. Or you could turn it around and say, well, this is an example of an investment trust board you know, taking initiative, you know, doing their fiduciary duty and, and so on and so forth. And, and clearly people will have different views on that. I mean, what you can say is that it's been an effective way of narrowing Chrysalis's discount. So it was about 26% ahead of this announcement. And then obviously with the declining NAV and the share price hasn't really moved that much, it's coming to about a 10% discount. And that's, I'm being slightly facetious clearly, but that's not unhelpful because I think the market was trying to get a feel for how much the portfolio was worth. I mean, we clearly knew because of some of the unquoted that they'd slipped off over the last few months. And as I said, the questions over some of the larger holdings and Klarna in particular, the valuation of that had been very much this subject to media speculation and so on and so forth. So I think the board felt that something had to be done and to bring an independent third party value in it seems a reasonably sensible option. But, you know, it's still on a discount. Um, it's still therefore not likely to raise money anytime soon. And and I think there is a bit of a bad taste, frankly, after that performance fee. Uh, I think there's work to be done, I think is the, probably the appropriate expression. And then obviously, there'll be a lot of interest in the interim results as and when they are published. And as I said, we probably wouldn't expect those till, till the back end of June. I mean, I guess the only other point to make here is that that decline of 13% from uh, end of the year to the 21st of March I mean, that is would have been greater than the decline in the S&P 500, for example, so or whatever benchmark you, you compare it with. So it does sort of underline the point that some of these unlisted holdings, you know, lose their value alongside listed public markets as well. And to an extent, by uh, proportionately a, a larger amount or potentially because they are unlisted, there are uh, issues around liquidity and so on uh, that affect that. Would that be a fair comment? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it's... <sighs> Valuing these companies is an art, not a science. I mean, there is a lot of science behind it, but ultimately, you know, a value of a company is what someone's prepared to pay for it, frankly. And you only ever find that out at a particular moment in time. So there is a bit of an art to it. As I say, just to bring in an independent value, I think probably provides some confidence. But the last time the managers, so Nick Williamson and Richard Watts, provide some commentary over the portfolio, they said, look, the actual portfolio companies are performing well. You know, during this period, this was a, about a month or so ago, I think this is when they published their NAV as at the end of December. But the commentary at that stage was that the underlying portfolio is performing. That's not really the question. It's over the valuations and what are these companies worth is, is the key point. Yeah. I mean, for comparative purposes, there has been a derating of uh, Shehalian as well, which is the Bailey Gifford Trust, which is in, in some respects similar. And so uh, is there a kind of general awareness that this is an issue for you know, all these types of company rather than uh, just for this one specifically? Yeah, I mean, look, from the start of the year, obviously markets have got chompier over the last month or so for reasons that we discussed at the start of the podcast. But at the start of this year, we knew inflation pressures were building. We knew that that was likely to lead to rising interest rates and therefore that would be a more difficult environment for growth companies or high growth companies. And that's effectively what Shehalian and Chrysalis Investments and, and so on and so forth are providing exposure to. So that has been a considerable headwind so, I mean, Shehalian is still trading on a, on a premium rating. The ordinary share class probably about 34% or so, but that's a relatively illiquid share class. The C share, the premium ratings probably come down to about 19% or so on that. And it would appear that certainly the, the NAVs for Shehalian on the two share classes have reflected changing circumstances. In other words, there have been some changes in some of the underlying valuations. I mean, they've made that clear. So it is a more difficult environment for these growth companies, but Again, to the point I just made, it's kind of how these companies are actually performing in the here and now and the 
commentary from not just Chrysalis, but from the Bailey Giver team as well, seem to be, yeah, we're, we're quite happy with the underlying performance. But then that secondary question, and arguably more important for when we talk about the valuations of the NAVs, is, you know, what would you value these companies at today? And that seems to be where we've seen that step change. But that's in the here and now. And there's no reason why those values have to be crystallized today. You know, the Bailey Giver team, and I'm sure this is true of the Chrysalis team as well, uh, or the Jupiter team as is now, um, they're, they're very much long-term investors and they're not forced sellers. That's the advantage of this captive pool of capital that an investment company provides. So just because conditions aren't right to kind of realise these investments in the here and now is not in itself necessarily a problem. No, though I guess the other factor is that if markets continue to be difficult, as they have been, then the prospect of some of these companies actually listing on the market will recede a little bit, I suppose. As you say, they may be happy to hold them for a long period of time, and in due course, the end game is that they want them to either to list or to be uh, subject to a trade sale or, or whatever. So uh, if markets remain difficult, that might at least put back the date when uh, some of these companies actually do actually start to realise some of that value. And, and I think that's absolutely right. And that's obviously not just true for these companies that we're talking about now, but it's true for the listed private equity sector in general. I mean, last year was a fantastic year for private equity as an asset class for a number of different reasons. But one of the key reasons was the fact we saw such a high level of realisations. I mean, investment activity was very, very strong. And they were realising these companies at quite considerable premium ratings to their, their carrying values. Now, it would seem to me that the mood music has changed quite a lot on that. I mean, we're talking about IPOs and investment company sectors, of which they have been zero this year. And, you know, investment companies aren't unique in that regard. The IPO window is pretty much closed across all the kind of developed markets at the moment and probably across the whole world. So certainly uh, realisations will have slowed this year. It's a question of whether that is a postponement and that we see that kind of bounce back in the second half of the year. And again, there are instances where that's been true in recent years. Uh, I mean, you can talk about post the pandemic, where obviously during that kind of initial stage of the pandemic, March uh, 2020, and for you know a couple of quarters thereafter, investment activity was quite low in the private equity space, but then actually really bounced back and was one of the reasons why it was so strong last year. So are you just kind of building a pent-up demand, or has something fundamentally changed? Uh, which kind of goes back to your commentary at the start of the podcast on the bond markets and, and valuations and all the rest of it. So the answer to that is we, we don't really know. Uh, I'm sure most practitioners in the private equity space say, no, we're pretty confident it's it's going to bounce back and all the rest of it. But we'll have to see how it shapes up. Indeed. Okay, so finally now we can move on and talk about, there aren't that many uh, commercial equity trusts reporting at the moment. We can talk about some specialist and generalist property trusts now. Uh, and we're going to kick off with uh, PRS REIT, ticker PRSR. They've had a trading update, I think. That's right, trading update to the end of March. Uh, in that kind of quarter period, that three-month period, they've added 127 new rental homes, and that's taken their portfolio to 4,616. So they've continued to build that portfolio. I think they're looking at some of the, their financial year-end, which I think is the end of June. They're anticipating the completion of 5,000 homes, Oh, sorry, that's before the end of 2022. So that would be a real milestone for them. Um, but if you look at their expected rental value from that portfolio at the moment, that's up to about £46 million or so, in addition to which we've seen 99% of invoiced rent collected. And of the 4,600 or so homes, 4,500 are actually occupied. So just to remind people, this investment company is a very specialist play. It's looking at new build rental homes for the private rental market uh, in the UK. So over a number of years now, this has been about building out the portfolio and uh, they've been seem to have been very successful in that. Yes, they got delayed by uh, COVID. Obviously, all the restrictions then delayed the build out of their 5,000 home target, but it's uh, they're pretty much on, on track for that now. Quickly, um, what's the yield on this one? Obviously, these things tend to send on a yield basis. Yeah, I've got it on a historic basis of about 3.6 or so, uh, which is probably a little bit lower than some of the names in that space, but probably a reflection of the fact that it's trading on a 7% premium. And also, as I said, they're coming towards the end of their financial year. So it'd be interesting to see what they do with their dividend kind of going forward. They have actually declared a 1p dividend in respect to that third quarter, that, that for them, the, their financial year third quarter. Okay, so we can move on now and talk about Schroeder European Real Estate Investment Trust, ticker S-E-R-E, and they've similarly had an update. Yeah, that's right. So again, an update for the three months to the end of March. So their direct property portfolio was valued at €211 million. That was up just short of 2% over the quarter. 
Uh, their 50% interest in their Seville joint venture continues to be recognized at uh, nil interest. That's been the case for some time. But the valuation increases in general are driven by yield, compression, and, and indexation. Uh, and they make the point that 100% of portfolio leases are subject to indexations. Uh, so 96% of the rent due for the quarter ending the 31st of March was collected. One interesting thing there, I guess, is, I mean, that's pretty prompt getting out a, a, an NAV update for a property company, both these uh, last two. That's pretty good going since we're only in April the 15th at the moment as the date of recording. And this is to the end of March. That's not totally normal, is it? I mean, most obviously companies with, I suppose, more complex uh, broader portfolios take longer to do the valuation exercise? Yeah, no, it's a fair point. I mean, it's worth noting that when these uh, property companies do their updates, there'll be different methodology used. So there'll be an, uh, sometimes in the year where they will do a kind of full revaluation of the portfolio. And invariably at that stage, they will bring in independent property experts who will check the valuations or drive the valuation process. And there will be other stages. And I would suggest that this is one of them, that they will just apply an index and look at the, the, the rents that have been generated and all the rest of it. So it's a kind of what we call a desktop review process. And that's not to suggest it's invalid, far from it, but it's probably the, the full portfolio revaluation process that you place more confidence on. Yes, I was just wondering about that uh, reference to yield compression, given what's going on in the in the bond market. But I guess uh, the yield they might be using is slightly different. I mean, you would would you be thinking about yield compression in, in the first three months of this year? I'm not sure. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily. But then I'm not in this business. Uh, let's move on before I get myself into a deeper hole. And let's talk about UK commercial property REIT, ticker UKCM which is one of the bigger generalists or was one of the bigger generalist property companies and took a bit of a beating during the COVID pandemic sell-off like uh, a number of other commercial property trusts, but uh, it's come bouncing back. It has indeed. And these were annual results for the year to the end of December 2021. So we'd already received an NAV valuation, actually, but this is kind of fleshing out the story. But just to cover the numbers off, the NAV total return came in at 21.5%. That represented a significant outperformance of the 16.8% benchmark return. Gearing increased a little bit. It was 6% a year earlier, ended up about 13.5%. But it's worth noting, actually, UK commercial property REITs, it tends to be one of the more conservatively managed balance sheets. In other words, the gearing level on this particular one will be lower than some of its peers. What happened during the year? Well, rental income decreased by about 10% or so. So that came in about 58 million. And unsurprisingly, therefore, EPRA earnings per share uh, dropped about 2.2%. So there was a little bit of portfolio activity. They completed four sales uh, during the period and made five purchases. In terms of the income side of the story, obviously very important. Rent collection came in at 97% in 2021. That was a, a marked increase from the previous year. That was 83% in 2020 for reasons that I suspect are pretty obvious. Uh, the occupancy rate uh, was just short of 98%. And that was significantly above the benchmark occupancy rate, which came in at 92%. It's a very diversified portfolio, as you say. I mean, this fund has been around for uh, quite a few years now. And if you look at it, it's industrials over 60%, offices about 14%, retail 12%, of which the vast majority is in retail warehousing as well. And it's part of the Aberdeen stable. Yes, so uh, that one has uh, done well, and that one's uh, discount presumably has come in uh, a little bit more than some of the others. Is is that fair to say? Or yeah, no, that's right. I've got it on about an eight percent discount or so at the moment, that compared to an average of sixteen percent over the previous twelve months. And in yield terms, its uh, yield is probably about two point nine percent on historic basis at the moment. But I just caution a little bit of wariness when you look at some of these historic yields, because what we've seen with these commercial property plays is that they obviously either stop their dividends or reduce their dividends during the, the onslaught of the, of the pandemic and now are slowly building them up. So on a historic basis, the yield is 2.9%, but clearly the hope would be that that builds up uh, and recovers in time. So finally, we can look at another interesting commercial property trust, uh, which has announced some changes last year, as I recall. Uh, value and indexed property income, ticker VIP. What have they had to say? Well, tell us what they, are, what they do and then um, tell us what their update is. Yeah, this used to be a hybrid investment trust in as much as there was a kind of UK commercial property portfolio and then um, an equity portfolio, which I, I seem to remember was focused on more kind of smaller companies, if memory serves me right. They made the decision to kind of focus on UK commercial property. So we've just seen that kind of transition process play out. Uh, they made some good progress. And in fact, the update this week, uh, I mean, essentially it was valuing the direct commercial property portfolio at the end of March. But it, it, it gave some insight into how that process of transition is, is ongoing. So the the property portfolio was valued at just short of £156 million at the end of March. 
That was an increase from 110 million at the end of September last year, and that reflected net acquisitions as well as valuation uplifts. So overall, 83% of the portfolio is in property, 15% in UK equities, and they've got a little bit in cash as well. But the property portfolio certainly seems to be performing well. So over the six-month period to the end of March, it delivered a total return of 8.8%. And in fact, over a 12-month period to the end of March, it was up 20.2%. So this idea of UK commercial property actually enjoying quite a strong period of recovery as the latter stages of the pandemic. Um, But they made the point that actually the properties that have been held over the full six-month period, as opposed to those uh, acquired during that, they actually generated a total return of 11%. So where is the portfolio now, that property portfolio? Well, just short of 96% or so of the rental income is either indexed or, or fixed. There's very much a focus on industrials, that's about 33%, supermarkets as well, and there are no exposure to offices. So the portfolio is run by the OLIM property team, very experienced team, Louise Cleary and Patrick Harrington uh, are responsible. And they tend to be very active property portfolio investors. They're quite happy to move their property portfolios around uh, where they see the opportunity. And that's not necessarily the case for all uh, property investment managers. This is one of interest to me. I mean, you'd think given that it's uh, in the particular areas that it is, it's been quite smart, it's in the right sectors or the ones that have proved to perform best, like industrials and supermarkets. And uh, they've announced this kind of, uh, if you like, streamlining of the of the process. And yet it continues to trade on quite a wide discount. It's coming a bit, I think, from when they made the announcement because it was a a rather sort of uh, relatively illiquid kind of off-the-radar vehicle before. Um, So what what do you think is going on there? What kind of discount have you got it on? Yeah, I've got it on a discount of about 16% or so. That compares to an average of 18% over the previous 12 months. I mean, it's got a yield of 5% at the moment. And it's also worth noting that it's one of the AIC dividend heroes. I think it's up to 34 consecutive years of dividend growth. But yeah, I, I suspect it's probably off the radar of, of a lot of people. And, and it isn't the most liquid of funds. That's probably fair to say. So it's got a share price at the moment about £2.50 or so on average. Uh, it probably trades or certainly has over the last six months. It's probably traded about just short of 40,000 shares a day. So for a lot of professional institutional investors, that would not suffice from a liquidity point of view. Right. And given that it used to be a hybrid, I mean, the long term performance measures aren't necessarily that relevant, but they've done a pretty good job over the years, have they not? Yeah, I think that's right. And, and you know, obviously, as you say, it's the kind of their performance record on the commercial property that's now the relevant element going forward. So if you look at their kind of track record with this vehicle, that you won't really capture that because there's the um, the equity portfolio contained in that over longer periods of time. But certainly Olim as a property team are highly regarded. Um, they're also involved in Scottish American investment company, the property portfolio of that. So that's a fund that's run by Bailey Gifford on a global equities portfolio. But the property element is in the hands of Olim. And again, that's performed very well over the long term. Very good. Well, that gives me conveniently a moment to describe that this week we actually have a profile of Scottish American for the Moneymakers Circle, which just happens to be a coincidence, but there we are. And there's also a Q&A with James Hart, who manages the investment trust portfolio for the Witten Investment Trust, which is a mainly multi-manager trust, but also has some significant interest in investment trusts, an area where it specialises so that's all we have time for this week. It's been a short week. Next week will also be a short week because of the Easter holiday. Uh, but I shall look forward to uh, speaking to you next week, Simon. Thank you very much. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.